Hello and welcome to Shop Talk. On this episode, we're going to be reading through Tablet 6 of David Ferry's rendering of Gilgamesh. On our previous episode, we read through Tablets 4 and 5. Our first takeaway was that Enkidu is able to interpret Gilgamesh's dreams, and that made us realize that Gilgamesh and Enkidu are two very, very different characters. Our second takeaway was that this story, which is regarded as the oldest story ever written, is a story of friendship. So from the beginning of time, emphasis has always been on the value of relationships and storytelling. Our third takeaway was that divine intervention plays a major role in Gilgamesh. Divine intervention is the idea that gods come down and they interact with the characters and have a major influence on the story. So with those ideas in mind, let's get into Tablet 6. Tablet 6, Part 1. When Gilgamesh the king came back to the city after the victory over the demon Hawawa, he washed the filth of battle from his hair and washed the filth of battle from his body, put on new clothes, a clean robe, and a cloak tied with a sash and cleaned and polished the weapons that had been bloody with the hateful blood of the demon Hawawa, guardian of the forest, and put a tiara on his shining hair so that he looked as beautiful as a bridegroom. The goddess Ishtar saw him and fell in love with the beauty of Gilgamesh and longed for his body. Be my lover, be my husband, she spoke and said. Give me the seed of your body, give me your semen. Plant your seed in the body of Ishtar. Abundance will follow, riches beyond the telling, a chariot of lapis lazuli, and brass, and ivory with golden wheels, and pulled instead of mules by storm beasts harnessed. Enter our house. From floor and doorpost breathes the odor of cedar. The floor kisses your feet. Princes and kings bow down to offer their wealth. The best of the yield of orchard, garden, and field. Your doe, goats, give you triplets, your ewes also. Your chariot steeds and oxen beyond compare. Gilgamesh answered and said, What could I offer the queen of love in return who lacks nothing at all? Balm for the body? The food and drink of the gods? I have nothing to give to her who lacks nothing at all. You are the door through which the cold gets in. You are the fire that goes out. You are the pitch that sticks to the hands of the one who carries the bucket. You are the house that falls down. You are the shoe that pinches the foot of the wearer, the ill-made wall that buckles when time has gone by, the leaky water skin soaking the water skin carrier. Who are your lovers and bridegrooms? Tamas the slain whose festival wailing is heard year after year under your sign. He was the first who suffered, the lovely shepherd bird whom Ishtar loved, whose wing you broke, and now wing broken cries lost in the darkness on the forest floor. My wing is broken, broken is my wing. The lion whom you loved, strongest of beasts, the mightiest of the forest, who fell into the calamity of the pits, the bewildering contrivances of the goddess, seven times seven. You broke that great wild horse and snaffled him. He drinks the water his hobbled hooves have muddied. The goat herd, who brought you cakes and daily for you slaughtered a kid, you turned him into a wolf chased away by the herdsmen whose hairy flanks, smelly and mangy, the guardian dogs, snap at. You loved Ishulanu, your father's gardener, who brought you figs and dates to adorn your table. You looked at him and showed yourself to him and said, Now touch me where you dare not. Touch me here. Touch me where you want to. Touch me here. He said, Why should I eat the rotten food, having been taught to eat the wholesome food? Why should I sin and be cursed? And why should I live where the cold wind blows through the reeds upon the outcast? Some say the goddess turned him into a frog among the reeds, with haunted frog voice chanting. 
beseeching what he no longer knows he longs for. Some say into a mole whose blind foot pushes over and over again against the loam in the dark of the tunnel, baffled and silent forever. And you would do with me as you did with them. Okay, so... This is a little bit crazy. I mean, Ishtar is throwing herself at Gilgamesh. Ishtar, the goddess of love and beauty, sees Gilgamesh coming back all proud and puffed up from his victory, and she absolutely shamelessly throws herself at him. And he shuts her down just as surprisingly. One of the most harsh responses to uh, seduction that I've ever <laughs> read in literature. Seriously. He lists off every wrongdoing that, that she has ever committed, and the list is pretty despicable. Like, a, turning a shepherd into a wolf is, like, all sorts of like, crazy. Crazy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he, he totally slams her. Um because he feels like he's too good. But who is good enough for Gilgamesh, I guess, is the question that right. I think of. Something that I think is really interesting is that last tablet, he almost ran away terrified of Huawa. But now that he has slayed Huawa, he comes back to Uruk, the most proud that he has ever been. He's, like, insufferably proud. And what we see in any mythology, when the character becomes too proud that they, like, go up to a god and insult them like this... It doesn't usually end very well for them. Agreed. Let's see what happens in the next section. Part 2. Ishtar was enraged and went to the gods in heaven, to Anu her father and to her mother Antum. The king of Uruk has insulted me. He has found out and told about my foulness. Anu her father said to the goddess then, Why do you rage? Was it not you who longed for the semen of Gilgamesh? Was it not you who desired his body? Why then do you rage? He has found out and told about your foulness. The goddess said to the god, her father, thus, Give me the bull of heaven that I may punish Gilgamesh the king, who has found out and told about the foulness of the goddess. Give me the bull of heaven with which to kill him. Give me the bull of heaven, or I will go to the underworld and break its doors and let the hungry dead come out to eat the living. How many are the dead compared to the living? Then Anu, her father god, said to the goddess, if I should give the bull of heaven to you, then there would follow seven years of husks. Have you prepared for this? Have there been garnered grasses and grain to help sustain the people? Ishtar replied to the god her father thus, I have prepared for this, for I have garnered grasses and grain to help sustain the people during the time of seven years of husks. And all of a sudden, we're on an episode of the Kardashians here. We know that she's mad. She's got her feelings hurt. Gilgamesh was brutal to her. But what does this goddess do? She acts very human, very spoiled human, and goes running to her daddy to beg for the bull of heaven. That's right, Dad. He was mean to me. Could you please just lend me the bull of heaven so that I could destroy Gilgamesh? I don't want him to be mean to me anymore. And the dad gives her a hard time for a second. Yeah, yeah. He's like, well, if I give you the keys to the bull of heaven, what are you going to do to make sure that the people of Uruk have food during the seven years of famine? Right, so he's sacrificing all the people of Uruk so that his little girl can get her revenge. Yeah. Jeez, the gods and humans. There's some similarities there, Mr. Doyle. I know. He does cave to her very easily, and I wonder if maybe he was a little bit stricter when she was young. Maybe she wouldn't behave like this. Definitely not. What are your your thoughts on that? you got to lay the foundation early. Yeah. You know, set those barriers. Kids actually like boundaries, Mr. Doyle. I've heard heard that, yeah. Yeah, let's work on that. Yep. Part three. So Anu gave the bull of heaven to her. And it came down from heaven, snorting and bellowing. Euphrates shook, 
The city of Uruk shook, and the earth broke open under the great bull noise. One hundred men of Uruk fell in the pit and died in the pit. The bellowing broke open. The bull of heaven bellowed, and Uruk shook. Euphrates shook, and the earth broke open again. One hundred men of Uruk fell in the hole. The great bull noise broke open and died in the hole. For the third time the bull of heaven bellowed, and Uruk shook. And Enkidu fought the bull and took hold of the bull by the horns, and the great bull head thrashed over him, and the reeking bull slobber poured over his face, and Enkidu fought the bull, and the foul tail of the bull brushed over his face, and Enkidu wrestled, and Enkidu cried out to Gilgamesh, The life of man is short! Let us contend with the bull of heaven and win! And Gilgamesh fought, and fighting the bull they cried, Two people, companions, they can prevail together! And Enkidu seized the bull by the reeking tail, and Gilgamesh thrust his sword with the skill of a butcher between the shoulders and horns, and they killed the bull. They tore out the great bull heart and offered the heart to Shamash, bowing before the god, two brothers. After the battle, the two sat down and rested. All right, and so here we have another example of the two people, companions, prevailing together as Gilgamesh and Enkidu defeat the bull of heaven um, and rip out its heart and give it to Shamash, sort of as a little thank you gift. Yeah, and they very clearly state that theme as they're fighting with the bull. In the middle of slaying this monstrous beast and they're shouting to each other, The life of man is short! Let us contend with the bull of heaven! So, and we can kind of imagine that. Whenever I hear these repetitive phrases, I am imagining this being performed or told on a stage. Yeah. Two people, companions, they can prevail together. The life of man is short! (laughs) At at this point, they've already been through one heated battle. I think Huawa was a much more dangerous character than than the Bull of Heaven, and it seems like their experience with, with Huawa made it easier for them to slay the bull without really, like, really too much trouble. Right. And so then after the battle, they sit down and rest like anybody would. Right. Right. I think I need a rest. Let's, let's listen to you part You can four. rest after part four. All right. Part four. Then Ishtar was enraged, and the goddess climbed the parapet of the city of Uruk and spoke her curse. Woe be to Gilgamesh for insult to Ishtar, for Gilgamesh found out and told the foulness of the goddess and killed the bull of heaven, which Anu sent in punishment from heaven to shake the city. Then Enkidu was enraged against the goddess. He seized a haunch of the slaughtered bull of heaven and tore it loose and flung it toward the wall on which the goddess stood and said to her, If I could reach you, I would do to you what you have seen me do to the bull of heaven. I would festoon you with the guts of the bull. Ishtar went to her temple, and with her maidens, the votaries, and the temple prostitutes, did ritual mourning over the haunch of the bull. But Gilgamesh gathered the craftsmen of the city to show them the wonderful bull and how it was made, the great horns of lapis lazuli, the coating on the horns two fingers thick. He cut off the horns and filled the horns with oil, six measures of oil, and then he offered the oil in homage to his father, Lugalbanda. He carried the horns to his chamber in the palace and hung them in the chamber as a trophy. Then Gilgamesh and Enkidu together went hand in hand, two brothers to the Euphrates, and washed their hands in the calm river waters. The people of the city gathered to bless them and watched them in their progress through the streets. Gilgamesh spoke and said, I am the strongest. My fame will be secure to all my sons. The city scorns the goddess and shouts in praise of Gilgamesh because he has won the glory. 
That night there was dancing and singing in the palace in celebration of the victory. But afterwards, when all had fallen asleep, Enkidu had a dream and he awakened to tell the dream to Gilgamesh the king. Why is it that the gods are meeting in council? So Ishtar's mad. Her bull is dead. She isn't going to go... how she's going to explain that to her dad. I know. He's going to be so mad at her. So... Um, but she's not going to go down quietly. She comes up with like a little posse of people and they try to uh, retaliate uh, towards Enkidu and Gilgamesh. But Enkidu has had it with her. Yeah. And we see here Enkidu performing like a, a, the mirror image of what Gilgamesh did at the beginning of the tablet, where Gilgamesh just sort of tells her off in this really vicious, vitriolic speech. Here we have Enkidu saying that he wishes he could tear her apart the way that they just tore apart the bull. And again, this is not a smart thing for, for man to be doing uh, in mythology. You don't, you don't mock the gods, and we'll see how this works out for Enkidu. So, you know, Gilgamesh, I just think it's so funny when he speaks up these things, I am the strongest. He's convincing himself, so he, he declares that. He is talking again about how his fame will, will be secure to all of his sons. Um, and then they go to sleep after partying pretty hard and celebrating. And in that sleep, Inkadu has a dream this time and wakes Gilgamesh. And for someone who was able to find, like, the positive message in all of Gilgamesh's horrific dreams... He wakes up this time, and he seems pretty concerned, and he's saying, why are the gods meeting together? Like, he seems pretty pretty nervous about this. Like, he can't figure out any positive message in this dream. But even just based on what we've talked about about this tablet, I bet you guys listening to this have a reason why you could imagine maybe the gods are meeting in council. All right. You ready to take it away? Take away. All right. What do we got? All right. We've got these two companions again. Uh, they're going back and forth uh, with who's courageous and who needs the cheering on. But we have this repetitive idea throughout this tablet that uh, the two of them together are stronger than on their own. Yeah, it, this reminds me of a song where, like, the verses tell a different uh, might tell a different story, but when you get to the chorus, it's the same message over and over. And like these two companions working together will always overthrow the enemy. The more that they say it the easier it is to believe. Um, and, and it seems like they're like really pulling each other through these uh, different adventures together. Um, our, our second takeaway has to do with pride and that whole idea that man versus God in mythology is not a, it's not a good contest. And whenever man is too proud Gods are there to strike him down, and I, I think that we can all sort of put two and two together and make a prediction about what's going to happen to our heroes uh, in the coming in the coming tablets. And the final th- takeaway I, I would say is Ishtar. We're not going to hear a ton about her throughout the rest of the book, but she is really important in this um, tablet. She is a woman scorned. She is a goddess, uh, but she's acting very human-like in her behavior um, of seeking revenge and going to her dad to ask for the bull of heaven. Uh, even just her reaction, her emotional reaction to hearing sort of her missteps and mistakes um, presented to her from Gilgamesh is really infuriating. I know. And it's it's almost humanizing. She's not a human, but like, don't you kind of feel for her when she has that moment? She goes and complains to her dad, and her dad's like, well, you did all that stuff. Right, right. <laughs> it is, it's sort of like a, a scene from a movie that I, that 
I've seen before. I, I'm yeah. not sure. I can't really. Like you, yeah, you are kind of a jerk, but I also am your dad, and so I will give you your well, your way. Fine. Take the bull. Take the bull. Just don't get a, not a scratch on him. <laughs> not a scratch. Oh gosh. Okay. Well, thanks, Mr. Doyle. See you for Tablet Seven. All righty. Looking forward to it.